Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. On this National Sorry Day, I don't know, maybe we could play the game Sorry. Uh, I would say that John Cena is already playing the Sorry game, and I think he is apologizing for something for which no apology is due. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Fast and Furious 9 has released. It released in Taiwan, and John Cena, uh, who stars in Fast and Furious 9, was forced to apologize to China and the Communist Party of China um, because he said that the first nation or the first country to get to watch the film would be Taiwan. He spoke the truth. It's actually where the movie was first released, in Taiwan. The problem is that he used the word country to describe Taiwan And uh, the Chinese Communist Party does not recognize Taiwan uh, as anything other than a part of its authoritarian, autocratic Chinese regime. And so bowing to uh, the most repressive autocratic communist regime in the world, John Cena, and others uh, make these... Apologies from time to time. You will remember when the NBA apologized and stars in the NBA like LeBron James apologized to China um, because someone among their uh, among the NBA world. I, I remember it being a manager for a basketball team, you know, supported people who had democratic desires in Hong Kong. So um, with that in mind, we read uh, John Cena's apology. And the reason we read it is because he offered it in Mandarin. So let's just note that for just a moment. Uh, We have a person, John Cena, who is in this movie Fast and Furious, but might be most well-known to people because he's a WWF wrestler. Um, And... And we have him having learned Mandarin because, after all, the Chinese market, that's what we're talking about here, dollars and cents, the Chinese market is so big. And so bowing to the Chinese Communist Party is essential. It's required. And so he says in his apology offered in Mandarin, uh, posted uh it, on their video uh, platform, a Chinese social network called Weibo, um, that he is sorry. I made a mistake. Now I have to say one thing, which is very, very, very important. So how important? Three varies. Very, very, very important. I love and respect China and the Chinese people. I am very sorry. There's a fourth very for my mistakes. Sorry, sorry. I am really sorry. 
So there's uh, four sorries there in two sentences. Uh, You have to understand that I love and respect China and the Chinese people. So two statements of love and respect for China and the Chinese people. Um, It was not sufficient. Uh, The people on Weibo immediately responded, you must say Taiwan is part of China and you must say it in Chinese. Otherwise, we will not accept your apology. So not only do you have to say you're sorry in the most groveling of ways, very, very, very important. Sorry, 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 sorry. You must do so in exactly the words prescribed by uh, a particular group of people who want their apology offered to them in a particular way, even if, by the way, you were speaking the truth the first time around. So on this sorry day, National Sorry Day, I just want us to be mindful that the truth matters and we never apologize for it. It doesn't mean that we're arrogant or we're rude when we speak the truth, but it does mean we make no apology. And in the words of Rod Dreher and others, we live not by lies. Next up, John Brandon, our digital media director at Northwestern Media, a columnist at Forbes and the author of The Seven Minute Solution. We'll be right back. All right, joining me now, John Brandon, Digital Media Director here at Northwestern Media, also the author of The 7-Minute Solution. You can find it at 7minutesolution.com. John, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. All right, let's talk about um, what social media companies have the right to ban in terms of political advertising. Yep. Uh, here we go. We're, we're touching on politics. And I said that I, I'm not not a big expert on politics. I watch it just like everyone else. I, I've been mostly a journalist who has covered technology and innovation over the last 20 years. But I do pay attention to big tech and I do pay attention to the decisions they make and tr- how they're trying to handle some of these issues on social media. I don't think they've handled them that great. Uh, one of the things you're, you're referencing an article that I wrote for Forbes and uh, most people know around early January, uh, Twitter and Facebook both banned President Trump at the time. Uh, he's still banned from those networks. And what it really comes down to in a nutshell is that the the issue related to banning politicians is that the algorithms that are u- used by these platforms to kind of control what people say and if they're spreading misinformation or not, they actually don't work that well. And so the AI and the technology that they're using, it doesn't really spot this behavior and then it can't really throttle it or figure out what to do. So then instead of improving the AI or continuing to work on it. They just decided to just do outright bans. And then, of course, just recently, uh, a few days ago, the uh, Florida signed a, a bill that basically says that's not something that we're going to allow you to do. If the social media platforms end up banning a politician who's running for office in the state or local election, then there's going to be a $250,000 fine per day against these social media companies. Mm. which is uh which would would rack up fast 
It, it would, and there is kind of like a warning period of, I think, seven days. And uh, I didn't really get into the particulars of that too much because I wanted to address some th- things related to free speech and some of my opinions about that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and of course, as a journalist, uh, you know, being able to uh, even talk to you right now on the air and write these mm-hmm. articles and state my opinion is really all part of free speech. And uh, the the thing, the point that I make in the article, though, is that when when we're talking about free speech, uh, we don't have the right to abuse each other. We don't have the right to say things that are you know, outright false. And if I said something about you that was outright false, that's not really what we mean when we say free speech. What we mean is that I can have my opinions, my fact-based opinions. Uh, we're on faith radio right now. I can talk about my faith and how I became a Christian 35 years ago. That's a right to free speech that we have, and that's an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, but the the Technology companies, big tech, I mean, they're all dealing with this issue of how do we deal with uh, things that are like, well, it's your opinion, but it's based on something that maybe is is not quite accurate. And, and that's a really thorny issue. And like I said, the algorithms are really not that good at kind of uh, parsing that out. Um, you and I can kind of parse it out and we can kind of look into the research and all that kind of stuff. But, but the bots, uh, not so much. So I think that, John, the the challenge uh, is that this conversation about fact va- fact-based viewpoints, mm-hmm. um, I do believe we've arrived at a point in time where people imagine that they're entitled to their own set of facts. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. When we're talking about facts, we're talking about that which for which there is what, some empirical evidence? And then you're going to get the argument that says, well, there's no empirical evidence for God. So the people operating out of uh, that as a part of their fact base are actually the kooks. Yeah, and I think where I wanted to go with this with you today, too, is just to say that sometimes it seems like big tech has their definition of facts, and some of them kind of go against what we would say as believers and and so if I have, uh, you know, a fact-based opinion about the creation of the world, let's say, or, you know, and creation science is such an incredible field with uh, so many really, really smart people looking at these things. And there are facts with creation science. I don't know if you wanted to get into this topic today, but it just seems like a good example of I can express those fact-based opinions and if the big tech companies don't like them very much, then they're going to say, oh, well, that's spreading misinformation, you know. And and that's where I really want to take my stand. The, the Bible is a, a completely 100% accurate uh, in my view. And it's based on archaeological evidence. It's based on the truths of, you know, history that Jesus really did walk this earth. Um and and I want to be able to express those opinions, and even if I was running for office to express those opinions, and not have it be like, oh, well, we don't really agree with that, and we don't like that very much, so then we're going to ban you because of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I thought that was an important point to make. So thank you for, um, you know, sort of coming around and uh, and talking about that as well. Really appreciate it. Obviously, it's not covered in your Forbes piece because it's not relevant <laughs> to that particular conversation. Right. John, Brandon, and I are going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Um, we're going to actually talk about why taking breaks is so important right after this break. You got me singing like this. 
Continuing my conversation with John Brandon. We are going to talk uh, next, right now, actually, about why taking breaks is so important. You can find this at 7minutesolution.com. All right, John, let's talk about taking breaks, what they are, and why they matter. Yep. So this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because uh, as a journalist uh, over 20 years, I I wrote 15,000 articles over that period of time, which is just kind of astounding to me to even think about and looking back at all that time I invested. Um, and, And a lot of it was for Uh, some really well-known publications. I started writing for Wired Magazine in 2004. I wrote for Inc. Magazine for 10 years. Three years of that was a print column and then seven online. And I say all that because, you know, I I really need a break. Uh, I I did a lot of work over a long period of time. And uh, there were times when I would just be cranking out one article after another uh, in my days writing for Inc., I would do at least one, if not two, sometimes three articles per day. Uh, I'm, I'm much uh, less prolific with my Forbes column. But the, the take-a-break routine is something I came by very naturally. My, my daughter, Rachel, is actually helping me with a book launch. And she pointed out once that she remembers when I was... Um, when she was a kid and I was doing all this journalism and just cranking out all these articles that she said, I remember how you used to come up and you would take like a, it seemed like about a seven or eight minute break when I was a kid and you would talk to us and maybe you would throw the ball around in the living room or something like that. And she actually recognized that I was doing the take a break routine that, that, that I talk about in the book even, you know, 15 years ago or something like that. And so a lot of it is just kind of being able to set aside things and say, you know, I'm not going to think about talking on the radio right now. I'm not going to think about my article. I'm going to do something completely different. And there's a lot of brain science around why that's so important. Uh, But I thought it'd be good if I, I could maybe just walk people through the take a break routine just for a minute. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, do it, man. Yeah, so, and and there's nine routines in the book, 7minutesolution.com. You can find out more about the book. But the take-a-break routine, I, I start a lot of the routines saying, you know, breathe for one minute. And this is where you get into, like, kind of getting into a period of rest and kind of just saying, you know, I just need to take a pause. I need to breathe. I need to just not just drive and keep pushing myself so much. And so the first minute you do a breathing exercise, minutes two through three, uh, you think about something fun and kind of reckless and careless. And this is about uh, kind of compartmentalizing. Uh, One of the things that happens when we're working is we tend to hyper-focus on something so much that we, we put our brain on overload. And we get steadily kind of worse and worse at doing work. Uh, Studies have shown that we actually have, uh, you know, after four or five hours of steady, hyper-focused work, our brain just kind of gives up and says, you know, whatever, I'm I'm done for the day. Uh, So some of us only get about four or five hours of productive work. Um, So you think about something fun. Minutes three through six, you do something kind of lazy and and kind of not that important. So in the book, I talk about doing sodoku or crossword puzzles. Uh, There's a couple of uh, games that I recommend playing on your phone or whatever it is. It's just a way to remove the uh, distractions of work and the the hyper-focus of work and say, you know what, I'm just going to take seven minutes to give my brain kind of a reset and kind of just take a little bit of a break from that. 
And then at the very end, you just review what you've done and kind of think back about, wow, okay, I actually took a seven-minute break, and I, I didn't have to just drive myself into the ground at work. And I, I will say, Carmen, that the thing about the take-a-break routine, I, I just want to challenge listeners with this to try a seven-minute period where you don't do anything really that constructive and, and do it a couple times and just see how it makes a difference in your life. All right. So um, I'm going to use my first minute to focus on breathing. I'm going to take <laughs> two to three minutes to think about something that is, you know, kind of like off, off the, like literally off the wall fun. You use the word reckless. Um, that's sort of a resetting my brain function. What, uh, what am I doing with the rest of my seven minutes? Yeah, so minutes three through six, you're doing something lazy and and not that's that's not productive. So I recommend a crossword puzzle. I, rem- I recommend mm-hmm. something that's just a, a game, maybe on your phone. Actually, I should say I discourage using the phone on most of the routines, except for this one. If a if a game on your phone helps you relax, that's that's totally fine. And then at the end, you just have to review it for one full minute. This is all timed. You should time it with a stopwatch or your watch or even. Uh, you know, a timer on your phone or something like that. What What's really happening, though, is by timing something for seven minutes, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to be really intentional with my time, at least for seven minutes. And then what happens is that teaches you a habit of being intentional with your time. And and so the, the benefit is like, you know, throughout your day and in, in the week, the month, basically you learn how to be intentional with your time and think about... Um, the main point of the book is, are you working on the right things? Do you have productivity with purpose or are you working really hard on the wrong things? And that's just the message that I keep talking about uh, in the book. Is there a seven minute like sand timer? This would be a product. <laughs> this is a, yeah. uh, this would be a product consideration. Yeah. And, and when Please, I, Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, when we send out the book, I'm thinking of sending a stopwatch or sand timer would be a great idea. When we send it out for review, like I'm, I'm thinking of sending a journal and a, and a little stopwatch or something like that. Mm. So, hmm, I like it. I like it. Apparently, um, there are some seven minute timers out there, but the four minute timer is apparently more popular. So I could get a four minute timer and I could turn it over twice, but then I would need to figure out how to how to you know get myself stopped before the the time ran out the second time on the four minute timer. Yeah. A lot that of, sounds a little complicated, doesn't it? It does. And, and I, and I make these routines intentionally pretty basic. You know, this is not rocket science in my opinion. This is something where, <laughs> uh, you know, you're just kind of being more intentional with your time and, and thinking through things a little bit more. But that's what's crazy about this is you'd be amazed how many people don't take breaks and they just work all day long, eight hours. Uh, your producer's nodding his head like, yep. And, Guilty and... as charged. <laughs> That's right. We're also multitaskers, which is something that you should definitely talk with us about maybe the next time you're on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially Because Paul and I are totally both multitaskers, and sometimes it's um, <clears throat> not helpful. Yeah, yeah. Your brain can't multitask, but uh, you, you can sort of pretend to, I guess. john brandon as always thank you so much you guys can find the book you can find what we talked about today at seven minute solution.com we look forward to talking with you next time man awesome thanks for having me all right we got to take a break for break point 
The suicide numbers in America are staggering. We now have children's hospitals uh, posting their numbers and um, calling us to recognize the mental health emergency happening among children and teenagers in the nation. Dr. Matthew Sleeth joins me next. His new book is Hope Always, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is Max Lucado. Paul gave these instructions to the Romans and repeated them to the other churches, twice to the Corinthians, then to the Thessalonians. Peter flew the friendliness flag as well. He said in chapter 5 and verse 14 of his first epistle, greet one another with a kiss of love. We tend to overlook these passages. Why the big deal? I mean, why should we be careful to greet one another? The answer, out of respect. Respect is a mindfulness of another person's situation. Respect says hello to the new kid in class. Respect says good afternoon to the cashier at the checkout stand. A greeting in its purest sense is a gesture of goodwill. Simply greeting one another is not that hard, but it makes a significant difference. And this is how happiness happens. Some sort of Dr. Matthew Sleeth joins us again today. He's a former emergency room physician, chief of the hospital medical staff. Uh, He is a teacher and a preacher. He writes about faith and health. He has joined us um, on prior occasions, and today he joins us with his new book, Hope Always, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. Matthew, welcome back. Great to be back with you. So um, I want to tell people right here at the outset that we have copies of this book to give away, um, because as we discuss it, I want folks um, for whom this is a, an, in, uh, an imminent and intimate concern, suicidal ideation, um, I want them to know that this resource is available from our friends at Tyndall. And so if, um, if this is your issue and a topic you're dealing with directly today, we'd like for you to enter the drawing for the books we have available. Just text the word book to 877 877- Nine three three two four eight four. Matthew, let's start with um, the reality of suicide in America today. Give us some of the stats, and then talk about your concern about the accuracy of those numbers. Sure. We uh, suicides are measured per hundred thousand. We're at fourteen per hundred thousand, which ties the all-time high in the Great Depression. But as I say in the book, uh, that really doesn't tell the story because it's much harder to kill yourself today, thankfully, because of modern medicine. And a more accurate um, uh, measure of what's going on is the number of people thinking about it. There'll be 10 million Americans in the coming year that will contemplate seriously ending their life. And of that 10 million, one and a half million will end up in emergency departments being treated. If we transported that one and a half million back to 1930, uh, our suicide rate would be somewhere in the range of 300 per 100,000. And so uh, we're, we're really in a situation that humanity has never, never known before uh, w- with the numbers that we're seeing. And it's not just, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to frame it that way. There are people who take their own life very late in life, and there are people who take their life um, at the prime of life 
But increasingly in our culture, we are experiencing children and teenagers taking their own lives. Can you can you talk about what you are seeing on that front? Yes, Carmen. My uh, son is uh, runs a pediatric department at uh, Large Missions Hospital in Kenya, Tenwick Hospital, uh, and he's been gone there for about a year. He just came back uh, for uh, uh, some time in the United States, and he went to the University Hospital in our city and and was running that uh, inpatient uh, department the other day. And he said, "Dad, I don't know what's happened. One third of our pediatric inpatient hospital uh, census is here for." suicides. Hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, it's a tragedy whenever anyone takes their life. But to me, it just stabs me in the heart when I hear about children who are just at the beginning of life uh, deciding not to live anymore. All right. And that says something um, pretty deep about what's going on in the culture. I want to ask a question about suicide being normalized. I have a Uh, a concern about the normalization of suicide um, because of the growing prevalence of, let's say, physician-assisted suicide. And this, you know, if if life becomes somehow unbearable, then we're going to actually make it a part of the medical practice to help you end your own life. That, to me, seems like a normalization process. But you point to some other um, things that are normalizing suicide in the culture as well. Well, we're changing the language around it, but I I think that you're spot on, and all we have to do is look to our neighbors to the north, and uh, uh, Christianity Today reported on this, but Canada has passed a law that a physician uh, should assist somebody in suicide even if death is not imminent and even if the only diagnosis is mental illness. And, and of course, that's going to get uh, applied to children, and they'll probably emancipate those children to make that decision. And so I, I'm just um, – I think we're at a key moment in time where the church is either going to step forward and say, say we're for life and we're for life throughout that continuum, not, not just at the beginning, not just at the end, um, but throughout that continuum, or it will be normalized and you're going to be able to go to the greeting card section of the store and pick out mm. you know, some flowery unicorn card for your friend who is making a life decision to end it. Um, mm. and, yeah, so uh, that's, you know, just, I mean, I, I think you're right, but like that's, that's a sobering, like that moment, like right when you frame it that way, that you're going to be able to walk into the greeting card section of, you know, uh, of your local um, store um, and you're going to and there's going to be a section dedicated to sort of in advance acknowledging like this is going to be something that people uh, tee up and plan for. And it will be it will be something that will be acknowledged. And that like right, when you describe it that way, you start to get to the place where when we talk about normalization, we're talking about a deep change in morality. Correct. We have uh, what I I believe the bottom, bottom line here. First of all, Christ gives the bottom, bottom line in John 10, 10, that the thief comes to rob and, and steal and kill, and he came that we might have life. And we are seeing what happens to society when we unanchor ourselves from the mooring of God. Mm. Dr. Matthew Sleeth and I are talking about his latest book, Hope Always. In it, you will find great research-based and scientifically grounded information about the suicide epidemic, but you're also going to get really, really practical, biblically-based 
encouragement and information on how to start a conversation. Um, there is great practical stuff in this book. If you um, are interested in entering the drawing that uh, for the copies that we have available here in studio from our friends at Tyndall, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Let's, um, let's talk about some of the resources that are available in the book because you, you know, the, the, the practical, like, how do I recognize that my friend or my child or my friend's child um, is in not just a mental health crisis, but in a process of suicidal ideation. And then, you know, once I recognize it, what do I do about it? Can you walk us through some of those? Absolutely. So the the book is, uh, uh, first of all, I will say that it's different than almost every book on the subject in that there are many, many books about suicide and why people commit suicide. I wanted to write a book about why people, specifically Christians, in the same circumstances chose to live. Mm. Because I think that we can learn from not people who have ended it, but people who have struggled through it. And so there's even examples of people we consider heroes of the faith. Charles Spurgeon, who uh, struggled with uh, with, um, uh, depression throughout his life, and Mother Teresa and Henry Nouwen, um, uh, to let people know that you can get through this. Um, there's sections on how to recognize somebody who um, uh, who may be struggling with depression. Um, but let's, because I'm an emergency room doctor by training, let's cut to the worst case scenario. And that is that you have a friend or a loved one that you think uh, might be contemplating ending their life. I literally give people the sentences to say to begin that conversation. And it's uh, Carmen, it's a hard hurdle for people to jump over. It's a subject we don't want to talk about. But when you prepared, uh, a little bit of knowledge here is a very powerful uh, thing. And I literally give people the sentence and just, just ask people, are you thinking about harming yourself? And, of course, we, we sometimes worry, oh, if we ask that, we might put it into people's minds. But research has been done at nauseum on this, and you only lower the incidence of suicide when you ask that question. So begin with asking, are you thinking about harming yourself? If somebody says yes, uh, the next question you have to ask is, do you have a plan for that? If they do, you have to ask if they have the means. So if their plan is to overdose, do they have pills? Their plan is to uh, use firearms. Do they have guns? And and then you've got an emergency on your hands. You have to you have to go ahead and act. Um, and but you will you will only save lives by opening this conversation. So those are the three questions that uh, Dr. Matthew Sleeve actually lists out for us to memorize in this book. Um, are you thinking about harming yourself? If the answer is yes, do you have a plan for that? If the answer is yes, do you have the means um, to do that? Uh, and that those are three questions that, that we need to memorize. We need to be prepared to ask, and we need to be unafraid and unashamed to ask them, um, because the alternative is something that not only can the other person not live with, but would be really, really hard for us to live with as well. We are talking with Dr. Matthew Sleeth about his brand new book, Hope Always, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. We have to take a brief break, during which you can text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
Continuing my conversation with Dr. Matthew Sleeth, we're talking about his new book, Hope Always, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. Uh, Dr. Sleeth, we have two listener questions before you and I pop into a conversation about Elijah. Um, One listener is asking, all right, if the answer to all three of those questions is yes, then what? Oh, you've got an emergency on your hands. That's the time to dial 911. You need to uh, either uh, take somebody to the hospital by ambulance or drive them yourself if if it's a safe situation. Another thing that I would recommend that people do is just take out their phones now and put 1-800-273-TALK in or 1-800-273-8255, which is the National Suicide Hotline number. And and that just having that on your phone says you you not only care, but you're prepared. Um, and that's a national clearinghouse of resources for local areas um, for help with uh, mental illness and, and suicide. Uh, that's one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Five you missed five. It the, if you missed it the first time, so that is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Um, the other listener question is related to terminology. I have heard people say "die by suicide" rather than "committing suicide." What does Doctor Sleeth think about that? Yes, and in the book, I actually talk about the language around this, and uh, there are people who are um, uh, changing the language, if you will, making it more politically correct. Um, we've been doing everything that uh, the the secular mental health care um, uh, industry has told us to do for three decades, and almost without fail, every single year, uh, suicide rates get about 2% worse. And so I think changing the language uh, is not helping that. Um, and, and and I think that the, the language before of committing suicide, you know, I committed to marriage, I com- commit malpractice if I do bad medicine, uh, served us well. So I don't think there's any uh, reason to come up with new language around this. All right. That's super helpful. All right. Uh, let's talk about the prophet Elijah. Why? Um, what do I need to know about Elijah? And, because you deal with this so this is so great in the book. So I want you to talk about Elijah. Elijah is one of the people. And by the way, the Bible has the answers to all questions. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know that until I was 47 and became a Christian read the Bible for the first time, but um, the Bible deals with the subject of suicide right on the first page. And there we see Adam and Eve being told that if they do a particular thing, they will surely die. They will be committing suicide. And they not only do it, but there's somebody pushing them. And that's Satan's um, you know, calling card. Uh, when, even when Satan meets Christ, he's trying to get him to jump off a building. Um, on the other hand, there's characters uh, in the Bible um, uh, that, uh, that, 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 come to the end of their rope and and yet cry out to the Lord. And, and the Lord comes and attends to him. And Elijah was one of those. Elijah was, you know, the prophet's prophet. I mean, this was the, the chariots of fire um, guy. And yet um, he got to a point where he was tired and he was hungry and he was scared and he was lonely. And um, the Lord came and ministered to him and put him to sleep and gave him water and food 
and and reassurance. And so, um, and he is not the only person in the Bible. Moses uh, cries out that he doesn't want to live anymore. Jonah does. Uh, David does. And so, if somebody's listening to this, it doesn't mean you don't love the Lord, and it doesn't mean the Lord doesn't love you. If these thoughts cross your mind, but that's the time to cry out to the Lord and the time to get help. And it may be as simple as you're working too hard, or you need to stop and eat, or you you simply need to change course and in, in where you're going in the direction of your life. We have a, um, a suicide survivor texting in right now, um, I think agreeing with you uh, in terms of the language component. If a person died by suicide, um, then we are we are saying that they didn't commit commit an act, um, but that they had an illness and therefore died from it. And so uh, he appreciate uh, this. This uh, person appreciates your point of view. Um, uh, so I do think that there's this illness question, and that gets us to the mental illness part of this conversation. Yes, uh, suicide is um, highly correlated with depression and uh, a few other uh, mental illnesses. And the question comes up is uh, again and again, is this the unforgivable sin? And um, the uh, it's a good question to ask. And, and one of the questions I asked people who had been through suicide uh, attempts or struggle with depression and, and suicidal thinking um, after they got through those was what kept you alive? What kept you from uh, from pulling the trigger? And the number one response overwhelmingly was fear of the Lord. And the Bible says that the fear mm. of the Lord is a good thing. It's the beginning of wisdom. And and so um, uh, to fear what might happen with suicide is is a good thing. It's a protective thing. And and Carmen, I forgot where, where what you asked me as I got into No, no, the, ro- so the, the, the role of mental, no, mental, mental illness, oh, yeah, like, mental right? Because there's a link you. here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you. So yes, many, many people have uh, mental illness and depression, and those can be overwhelming. They can have feelings of, of, of shame or just pain and that they can't um, go on. And I think if somebody's lost a family member uh, to that and that family member put their trust in the Lord when their mind was uh, sound, um, that they have reason to hope. The the end of um, uh, chapter 8 in Romans, uh, Paul is saying that nothing, not even death, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. on the on the other hand, if somebody hasn't put their faith in in Christ, um, I don't think that we can preach them into heaven, mental illness or not, in those situations. So I think that you know we who believe and have hope in in Christ have to um, at this point in time in history be twice as bold. There's no time for for people who are are shrinking or or cowards at this point. We have to say that we have this hope in Christ, and and Christ's work on the cross can can atone for any sin, including suicide, I believe. But but we have to come alongside those people that are, are mentally ill. I just spoke at Wilberforce weekend just a few days ago in in Texas, and at the uh, at the beginning of my talk, I asked how many people in the crowd had lost a friend or family to suicide, 
and the lights were on me. I couldn't really see. And I, I was told that at least a thousand hands went up. When I asked how many have had a sermon on this, three hands went up. And, and I'm mm-hmm. saying that to say that we in the church have to start talking about this. Jesus made absolutely no distinction in his healing ministry between people with mental illness and with physical illness. And in fact, I'm actually understating it. As a rabbi, he went to the one place rabbis would never go. He went to a huge stinking pig farm um, to deal with mental illness and and to uh, cure somebody. And we're told to to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. So like it or not, we in the church have to start talking about this, preaching about it, educating ourselves on it, and offering those words of life and encouragement to people. Yeah, and removing the stigma related to it. I think that's a huge part of this conversation is that we just have to start Mm -hmm. talking about it, acknowledging it. Um, It it is real. Mental illness is real illness. Um, And we live in a culture that is uh, not turning toward the light, but encouraging people to increasingly turn toward the darkness and a culture of death. And so the book is very, very helpful. Uh, Dr. Matthew Sleeth, thank you so much for writing it and joining us to talk about it uh, today. The book is Hope Always, How to Be a Force for Life in a Culture of Suicide. We, uh, we have some copies to give away. If you would like to enter the drawing, please text the word book to 877-933-2484 and plug the um, National Suicide uh, Hope Line number into your phone. It is 877, or it's 8, excuse me, 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-8255. Um, don't be afraid to, you know, pick up the phone if you're feeling uh, you're feeling genuinely uh, alone and suicide ideation is something that you are actively engaged in. Um, there is hope. There is help. The National Suicide uh, Helpline is 1-800-273-8255. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.